Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 335 with Christina Stemble of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth, Steve Case, Gary Vee, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, Founder Fam? Nathan Chan here, CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine. Hope you're doing well wherever you are around the world. Welcome back to another episode. Depending where you are, you might be locked down, you might be not, you might be enjoying life. Uh, here at Melbourne, we've been lucky that uh, we've come out of a very, very long lockdown and things are starting to open back up. We just recently opened back up the office at Founder, starting to see the team. And guys, we are working on so much awesome content to help serve you wherever you're at with your business, whether you want to start a business, when you want to grow a business, when you want to scale a business, wherever you're at on your journey, we are really trying to democratize entrepreneurial education and build one of the largest brands online to help you start or grow your business. So let's talk about today's guest. Her name's Christina Stemble. And She's had an incredible journey. I really loved our conversation. It was very transparent. It was very open. It was very honest around her journey, how she's built this business. She's taken it from zero to over $65 million a year in annual revenue. She's been rejected by over 104 investors. In the end, she just decided to bootstrap her business and it's just an amazing feat to be able to grow a company to that size and she's only just getting started. She's working towards building this company into a billion dollar annual revenue company and uh, in this interview, I talked to her around how she started the company, why she gave herself two years, how to market your business on a shoestring budget, 
Her views around Farm Girl Flowers as a workhorse amongst many unicorn companies being in San Francisco, and also the importance of product quality and why she believes that a good quality product will outsell any level of marketing, and then also the future of this company, how she's handled things during COVID, how she's handled building a seasonality-based business, which does come with its challenges, and so much more. So if you guys are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review. We work so hard to find some of the most hard-to-reach founders, founders that you might not have ever heard of them, but you know their brand or they're doing exceptional things. Like We have dedicated people that scour the globe to try and find these people. It's all for free. All we ask is you share this with a friend, leave us a review and help get behind this mission that we have for really helping people where you can learn what it takes to build and grow a successful business from people that have actually done it. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump to the show. The first question I ask everyone that comes on is how did you get your job? Yeah, so I got my job by just doing the hard work. I mean, my job was every job. So I, I, you know, wore all the hats. And so um, just being willing to do every single job gave me the job. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's usually how it is when you first start. So how did you find yourself, um, you know, doing the work you're doing today? How did Farm Girl Flower start? Yeah, so um, it's not the story that most people think. Uh, everybody kind of wants this romanticized version of, you know, I must have grown up like frolicking in my grandmother's garden or loving flowers. And it wasn't that at all. I just wanted to start a business and I wanted it to be able to check some boxes. Mainly, I wanted to be able to grow really big. I wanted to actually do something different. I didn't just want to take somebody else's idea and like slightly tweak it. Um, I wanted to actually like go in and I hate to use the word disrupt because it's so overused, but I wanted to actually disrupt an industry. I wanted to like do something different in an industry. And so uh, flowers was the first idea. Farm Girl was the first idea I had that checked all the boxes. Um, Another big one was I knew it needed to be bootstrapped. I knew there was no way that I was going to be able to go down to Sand Hill Road here um, and get you know, one of the big, you know, Anderson Horowitz to invest, you know, millions of dollars into me because I didn't have a tech pedigree. I don't have a college education. I have a very untraditional, um, you know, backstory. Um, so it wasn't really possible. So this was the first idea that I knew that I could bootstrap. Um, and so that's, that's why I went for it. And it did check all the boxes. But the one that I didn't know back then that I wish I would have is how hard perishability would be. Because if I was going to start a business now, I would definitely have a checkbox that says, is it perishable? Yes or no. And if it's yes, I would like go on to the next idea. <laughs> but um, that wasn't the case. So it was the best idea I had out of probably 4,000 ideas um, I thought that that I could do. Okay, interesting. And what were you doing before that? Like, what is your background? Is um, marketing, PR, products, tech, like... Yeah, you're giving me a lot of credit. Um, So my background before was just, I did a lot of jobs. I was in hospitality. Um, My last job before starting Farm Real Flowers was at Stanford University, which is ironic since I didn't go to college. Um, I ran a a catering company within the university that was owned by the university to start, which I I learned a lot from that helps me now today. Um, And it also was great because I was able to kind of start a company within a company without the risk. I had a paycheck. Um, And then after that, I became the director of alumni relations. So I did a lot of programs and events and we used flowers at those events, which is why I started researching the flower industry. 
because we would buy a lot of flowers. I couldn't understand why they cost so much, which led me down this rabbit hole of research on why flowers cost so much, only to find out very quickly that it, you know, I understood why they cost so much. And I thought, you know, I switched very quickly from the event space to the e-commerce space because um, that was where most of the opportunity and the white space was that I could go into and and start something in. Um, So it was just my background was varied. I've worked lots of wage level jobs, coffee shops, hospitality, hotels Then I worked my way up um, because I didn't go to college. I always had to start at the bottom and I'd worked my way up to, you know, until I was running the hotels and then um, going and working for the university. But I knew for at least 10 years that I wanted to start a business. And it was just trying to figure out which one um, that I could start and that I thought would actually be able to, to scale. Amazing. Well, look, you've done really well for your first business. So how long ago was it when you launched? Yeah, almost 10 years. Uh, I launched it November 7th. will be our 10-year anniversary um, back in 2010. And everybody thought I was crazy then to leave you know, pretty stable job. Stanford's not going anywhere, even though it's considered itself a nonprofit, you know? Um, so, you know, it was still the economic downturn in 2010. People are like, wait, you're quitting your stable job at Stanford to start a flower shop. And I'm like, no, no. And how many times I'd be like, it's not a flower shop. It's an e-commerce flower company, you know? And, um, but people thought I was crazy, but now all the research I, um, I do has, has shown that, you know, companies that start during, you know, bad economic times are actually the ones that tend to do better um, so I'm always telling people, even right now, when, you know, people are scared about, you know, the recession that's probably looming in front of us, like it's the perfect time to start a business. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of pros for it. Yeah, I agree. Um, so talk me through kind of how you kind of got the business up and running. You said, um, you know, proudly you're bootstrapped, which is incredible. Um, so did you start with a Shopify store with Shopify? I think Shopify is still early days or they weren't around. They weren't around then. At least they weren't around okay. in a way that I knew about them. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a friend of mine, so, you know, 2010, I quit my job in June. I gave myself until August to get a website up. Um, that didn't happen. It took till November. Um, but a good friend of mine, his company built it for me. Um, for only a few thousand dollars back then. I mean, what I spend in one week of development work now, um, (laughs) less than one week of development work now. So, you know, it was just very scrappy. You know, I had $49,000 of savings. I was like, I'm going to start this with $49,000. I gave myself two years or until I ran out of money, but that was to live on too. It was like one account, you know, (laughs) like I need to live on this and I need to start this company. And so everything was very bare bones, very like grassroots, um, you know, it cost me about 5,000 to start the website. You know, I had to go teach myself how to make flower arrangements. I knew nothing about flowers. So I would go buy flowers and practice and watch YouTube videos and how to process flowers and everything like that. And, um, just did everything myself too. I did it from my dining room for the first two years. Um, wow. I got very close to running out of money at year one and a half. Um, I got down to $411 at one point. Um, thankfully I just paid rent. So I still had a couple of weeks for to pay rent again. Um, and then at the two year mark, um, my corporate attorney landlord found out I was running an illegal business from my dining room and then gave me the, the pink slip that either I had to get out or the business had to get out. So I moved the business out before I would have actually, because I still wasn't financially stable. Um, I mean the first year we did, we, I say we, cause it made me sound you know, like we were big time. It was just me <laughs> in my dining room, uh, $56,000. And the second year did 276,000. So I thought, wow, five X growth. That's amazing. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then 
between the second and third years when it started to get some traction, but I had zero marketing dollars to spend. When I look back at my first financial model, it's hilarious because I think I had um, 24 cents per unit in there for marketing. Wow. I'd always been in operations working in hospitality and everything. So I just like marketing, this is like a waste of money. I could like hire people for this, you know, and like, you know, instead of putting it into marketing spend, but for the first probably two and a half years, maybe three, all of my marketing was going to coffee shops around San Francisco and putting out a flower arrangement with these little marketing cards that I made that cost like three cents a piece. And every week I would go back to each coffee shop in different neighborhoods. I did them all over the city and I would count how many cards were taken. And if like 40 or 50 cards were taken every week or more, then I would deem it a, a worthy expense to put another bouquet there for the next week. But if only 10 or 20 were taken, I was like, eh, I don't think that's worth the $20 it costs to do this flower arrangement. So that was it. And it was going to a lot of networking events at night and taking flower arrangements there. I would always like put them on the registration tables everywhere. Um, you know, even though people didn't, I didn't ask, I just put them out with cards and, um, that was all of my marketing spend. Um, and that's, it, it worked though. People picked up those cards and that's how they found out about us and about me <laughs> at that point. And, um, you know, between the second and third years when it really started to get some traction, I hired my first employee. We went from two, 276,000 to 920 that year. So almost broke a million. Um, but really from the start, I thought I was going to be able to prove out the concept and then go get funding. Like that was always the plan. I was like, I just need to prove, you know, it was a very different model. It was, you know, less is more. In the early days, we only had one bouquet option. That's it on our site. Um, everybody else had a minimum of 169 on their website. And so um, the education was really challenging because this was way before the less is more that everybody has now, you know, the fewer, better, less is more everything that, you know, from anything from clothing to shoes to anything. Now there's lots of companies that do that, but this was very early in 2010. And so trying to, you know, educate consumers that they could call us and order red roses and baby's breath that they just had to take our daily bouquet was challenging to do. And it took, it took a couple of years to do that. And, um, to my dismay, I was never able to go raise capital. I've gotten 104 no's. Um, I've tried many times. And um, this is now the first time I can honestly say that I'm so glad that happened, though, because we're in such a better place. And we're, you know, very, you know, doing really well with profit right now. And, um, and to own your company and be able to do whatever you want with it and to be able to make the decisions that you want is it's amazing. So, yeah, that's incredible. So, I'm curious, I'd love to delve, I, I definitely want to go from year three all the way up to 10 and really talk about that journey. But um, if we could rewind for a second, I'd love to know about finding the stock, like for your first order to fulfill and how you got your first customer and how you even got like in your first year, that $50,000 in revenue, like that's customers. That's like where, whether you, where and when you consider product market fit somewhere around you know, probably in between one and two, you've kind of like gone, okay, we're on to something here. How did you know to keep going, even though, you know, you were struggling? The first, I mean, when you asked about the stock, like when I when I had the like product, you mean to like, because yeah. it, it's not an inventory heavy business to start. Now it's inventory heavy because, you know, I have to order, we can't order off the shelf anymore. Like back then I could order off the shelf and we were really, you know, I was very fortunate that we had a, a very robust flower market in San Francisco. There's very few cities. There's only really two cities in the United States I could have done that in. 
Um, if I was in the middle of the country or, you know, if I was in Chicago still or back in Indiana where I grew up, I couldn't have started this company because I didn't have the accessibility to small quantities of flowers. Um, because I had a flower market in San Francisco, I could go and buy like one bunch of this and one bunch of this. All I needed was a wholesale license to do that. Um, and so, you know, I remember telling my dad, we still talk about it to this day, like, oh, I just need to get 11 orders a day so I can break even on the flowers that I'm buying. Cause I have to buy so many different types of flowers to make this bouquet that I needed 11 orders. And it took a while to get to 11 orders a day, um, a long while. And so that's how I came up with the idea for the coffee shops though, um, was I had extra flowers that I didn't have orders for. And so instead of throwing them away because they're highly perishable, you have about three days before you can't use them anymore. Um, I would need something to do with them. I was like, let, how can I turn this into marketing? You know? And so that's why I took them to coffee shops, the excess ones. And then to get customers, really, it was just the, I mean, my first customer of course was, was friends and family. So like in 2010, when I started November and December, I don't even count that as revenue because those were just friends and family. Right. So, okay. <laughs> but really the first real pain, I mean, they were paying my friends and family, my people that didn't know me, my first customers. And I remember being like giddy when I would like, look in the back end of the site and be like, I don't know this person. This is someone I don't know, you know, when they're ordering flowers from me. That was from the coffee shops. It really was. Or it was friends of friends. You know, I sent out emails to my friends being like, can you send this out? I'd make like a little marketing flyer and be like, can you send this to your email list and stuff? It was just very much that. It was anything I could do that didn't cost money. <laughs> um, I did for marketing. And, you know, I even like did a few illegal things like papering people's cars with just like, you know, like I'd make like flyers and be like, Valentine's Day is coming, farm real flowers and put it on people's windshields and stuff. So, um, and that was very cheap because I would just print it myself and cut them you know, at home. So um, it was things like that. And that's where the customers came from. I had no digital spend at all um, until probably 2013, let's say, when I started doing digital spend. And I, I, to, got really lucky with that. And I, I just can't, um, I can't take credit for how well we were able to build our, our digital presence because the timing of when we started, you couldn't do that now. Like we were acquiring customers in 2013 and 14 for under a dollar. Like it's yeah, 90. Wow. Yeah. To acquire a customer wow. because this was before and my ex-husband uh, worked in marketing at Facebook too. Um, so I also had that, that benefit, but you know, it, it was, really, it was great timing because it was before all of the big companies, they hadn't transitioned from, you know, Nordstrom, the big companies are all looking for 25, year old female consumers. We're all fighting for the same people. Right. And it was before they had like, were savvy enough to have like switched over all their traditional channels because they all are huge companies and have tons of red tape, right. To digital channels. And so they hadn't done that yet. And so now, you know, there are certain times like Black Friday, we don't even try to market. We just turn off our ads. You know, it's not even worth trying to do that to acquire that customer when, you know, those companies are spending so much money to do it. Um, but it's, it's being smart about when you're going to spend it. But back then, it was easy, it, to be honest. It, I don't, nothing was easy. I shouldn't say it's easy, but it was cheap. It was, you know, to acquire a customer under a dollar um, is phenomenal. And I wish we could do that now. Um, we still are well under $10. We've never really exceeded $10 on customer acquisition. This year, we turned off marketing um, when COVID hit in March to conserve every dollar we could. And then we found we didn't need to turn it back on because we didn't have the supply for the demand even because we're over 100% year-over-year growth right now. And yeah, without, wow. we just turned marketing back on uh, last week for the first time since March. Um, so this oh, wow. year, we show a 2 or $3 customer acquisition cost as well because we had it turned off for so long. 
as well. Yeah, wow. That's fascinating. So in the early days, you basically just, you know, did things that don't scale, as Paul Graham would say, um, and you kind of kept going. What? Why did you keep going, even though it was so tough? Yeah, because it was working. It just, you have to really build a very authentic brand, and that's what I was doing. So I put in a lot of work to build, like, we're now benefiting from that work that I did um, from the first five years of building a really authentic brand that people love. Um, it, it's just, it takes a lot longer to do it, a lot longer to do it. Um, so, you know, even though I don't have explosive growth, um, I mean, it is funny that everybody thinks we're an overnight success. And when I tell them we're 10 years old, they're like, Oh my gosh, I just heard about you a couple of years ago though. And I'm like, yeah, cause I was yeah. in my dining room, <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, it's like, I think Larry or Sergey from Google said, yeah, like after five years or after eight years, we were an overnight success, you know, and that's how it feels for farm girl. Um, you know, this year we're probably going to do around 65 million. So we definitely built it um, and it did scale, but it, it just took a lot longer. 10 years is a long grind. Um, and I think the reason I kept going is because I think I, like most entrepreneurs, have a really big fear of failure and I don't quit much. Um, and so I just needed to prove that I could make this work. And it was working from the standpoint of, I mean, we're doubling every year, at least, you know, and so that's, that's, you know, we've never had like a 20% growth year, that would be horrible, I would consider, but to most companies, that's a good year, right? So, you know, we were always doubling or tripling, um, the lowest year we ever had was 50% growth or 49% growth. And that was somewhat intentional, because we needed to fix some some problems that we we're having supply chain distribution, and also some culture issues internally. So because we've grown so fast. Um, mm. So we've put the brakes on at sometimes intentionally. Um, but it's, it, it's hard. Like it, like, I think that most people just gloss over how hard it is. And, um, you know, I think we get this over glamorized viewpoint of, uh, venture capital. And we think that companies are supposed to become unicorns in three years. And that's like the norm. And that's not normal. That's the exception. And, you know, we like to call ourselves the workhorse in a sea of unicorns, you know, like in Silicon Valley, everybody's focused on being a unicorn and we're, we're focused on being the workhorse. Like we're going to win at the end. We're going to build a really good company that's profitable. I like to say we kick it old school. We spend less than we make. Um, we're a healthy company. We treat our team right. Um, we have great benefits for our team and we worry about more than just the bottom line. And we're able to do that because we don't have to answer to investors that are looking for that three to five year 10x turnaround, you know? Um, return on their investment. And so it, it's funny because half the people I talk to think 10 years is so fast to have built a $65 million company. And half the people are like, oh my gosh, 10 years, how have you been doing it for 10? And, and depends on what day you talk to me on which, which camp I'm in. <laughs> so, but usually yeah. 10 years is a long time. <laughs> yeah. Look, I know what you mean, especially if you're in, um, you know, San Fran and like, it's, yeah, like it's crazy, like the growth and all sorts of things, but you're making that conscious choice to grow controllably, which gives you all the power and, you know, like it, it is a really great alternative path. And I think there is a big bootstrapping movement. You look at like the guys at Basecamp, um, there's many other founders that are now choosing um, to go down this pathway. So that, you know, it, it's not just a one side fits all. Yep. I think we need to talk about it more because it's, you know, the most freeing moment probably for me was when I finally realized that success does not equal funding. Like I can be successful without funding and I can stop chasing it and stop spending. You know, 
I was spending 30 to 40% of my time pitching to people. Yeah. A a lot of time. I have spent thousands of hours pitching in the last, so many, so many. And every single time it was a no or a couple of times we got yeses, but horrible offers. And you know, I did a lot of research and I got very bitter for a long time. And, you know, then I realized, look, I have less than a 2% chance of raising capital. As a solo female founder, I have less than a 2% chance. You take like tech, like software companies out of that, I have less than a 1% chance of raising capital. Why in the world am I spending 30 to 40% of my time pitching to a bunch of guys who have never actually built a company and they're telling me what I should be doing differently? And I'm sitting there thinking that, oh my gosh, at first I was thinking they're so smart. They're so much smarter than me. I didn't, I didn't even go to college. And then by like the third year pitching, I was like, no, I know what I'm doing. Look, I'm building, a look how fast we're growing. We've not run out of money. The fact that we haven't run out of money should give me enough accolades and enough like, you know, just proof is in the pudding basically to say, you know, how many companies can grow a perishable product company where even the big guys do less than 10% margins. Most are six to 7% and that's billion dollar flower companies. The margins are tiny. They're scarce. And, and what we're doing. And the fact that I'm able to bootstrap without running out of money is the accomplishment that I'm most proud of in my entire life. <laughs> and the fact that VCs and private equity uh, individuals don't see the value in that, to me, shows me that they're not the smartest people in the room. Because if I saw that in front of me, and when I have enough money to invest in lots of female-owned businesses, which I can't wait to do one day, uh, I will give so many points to people that can do that because it's the hardest thing in the world to do. It absolutely is. So, and not having to spend 30 or 40% of my time felt like a gift I was given back. And it also seemed like the wisest decision because if I have a let, like a one to 2% chance max, then I should be giving it one to 2% of my time. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. So how many no's do you reckon you got in those first five years of trying to raise VC? 104, I have a spreadsheet. I'm gonna send them all, I'm gonna have my pretty woman moment and I'm gonna, Oh, Send them wow. my check, and I'm going to be like, big mistake, huge mistake. <laughs> so 104. 104 no's. Mm-hmm. 104 yeah. no's. Wow. What yeah. a story. So let's let's go back a little. So first three years, broke, broke a million dollars, um, obviously probably had a couple of employees. Uh, were you still just servicing the local San Fran market, or are you starting to service other states too? Only San Francisco. So my intention was always to get national shipping going within two years. Uh, yeah. And I was so wrong. Um, it was not possible to do that. The subsidies on shipping were huge, and I had no idea how big they were. So uh, I couldn't afford it until year five and a half. Uh, at yeah. 2015, mid-year, uh, we started with just some not national shipping. We started just doing, uh, some other Bay area areas. So like we were only in San Francisco, which is seven miles by seven miles. It's a very small 49 mile squared radius. It was very tiny, um, for five and a half years. And so we were able to build it. We, we have pretty market saturation in San Francisco and we should have launched national shipping much sooner than we did, but I just couldn't afford it. Our subsidies started, um, at $19 per box that we had to subsidize. And that's, I mean, if we just done rack rates before I had enough buying power, it was almost $200 to ship a box and you can't charge consumers that. So I did all kinds of focus mm-hmm. groups to find out how much we could charge. Um, all of our customers said basically $15 was the sweet spot. 
eight, you know, I had it like tiered, you know, if we did $15, 92% of people in my focus group would buy. If it was 18, it was like 80 something percent, 81 or 82%. And then when I went up to 25, which was the highest tier, which is what we launched national shipping with, 2% of people pulled so that they would buy. You know how much wow. we still charge for national shipping? $25. We have not wow. been able to get shipping rates down because um, even once we launched national shipping, what I could afford to which was in 2016, we did, you know, some local areas, additional local areas in 2015. And then 2016, we started doing California shipping. And then mid-year, we started doing national shipping. And um, those subsidies, instead of going down, they increased very quickly. Uh, and I hadn't anticipated that because, you know, when I was doing my modeling on it, I anticipated that the entire United States would grow at the same rate, all of the zones. And that's not what happens. You know, major metro areas on the coasts grow faster. And so New York City grew very fast. And that's the furthest zone away from San Francisco. Florida grew very fast. Texas grew very fast. Um, those are still our biggest states outside of California. And our subsidies grew at one point to almost $40 a box. Wow. Yeah. And so knowing your numbers is really important. Otherwise, you run out of money super quick. So, you know, I would have to control how many we could even ship. So, like, the first Mother's Day that we were shipping nationally, we sold out in four minutes. I could only afford to do 200 boxes. <laughs> you know, Crazy. 200. Yeah. And after 200, I ran out of money for subsidies. And so then it just gradually I would be able to open up more and more. And then in 2017, about a year later, we had, you know, enough margin in other areas that we were able to negotiate, you know, better supply chain costs and things like that, that then I could put that towards. And we, I, always took from my marketing buckets, which is why my marketing is often two or three dollars for my CAC. You know, um, like when I tell people our ROAS is 27, they're like, that's not right. You're not doing the math right. And I show them and they're like, no, it's 27. I'm like, yeah, because I never have enough money to spend on marketing because that's the first bucket I take it from for shipping subsidies, you know. So um, 2017 mid-year, we were able to open it up without selling out um, except for holidays. Um, so we've really only been shipping nationwide, you know, without being handcuffed to the subsidies and selling out for three years and it has grown really, really fast, which is great. How come you didn't set up like supply chains in the different cities or, or in like, like a traditional e-commerce business? You know, if you, you know, you put, let's just say start in Australia, you see most of the, a lot of customers coming from US. So you set up probably something in, you know, like, middle of middle of the US or maybe you just yep. do East Coast or West Coast and you can control Canada and US and then you set up yep. something in Europe. Like why why didn't you do that? Is because it because of, of the flowers? No, it, oh. it's it takes a lot of money to set those up and bootstrapped. We've never had a million dollars or half a million to set one up, which is it took about six hundred and eighty thousand dollars to set one up. So now we have so we have one in Miami. Um we're opening other ones. We're doing a hybrid model with fulfillment centers and uh, distribution centers. But the other reason that I don't just do what all the other flower companies do, and they have bouquet makers and farms ship for them all of their product, is because we're a high design bouquet. So um, we actually, the thing that sets us apart is we are a designed bouquet. We are not just yes. a bunch of flowers. And so that's why we have a devout following that is willing to spend $25 to ship their flowers to them instead of free shipping like everybody else, too. Um, because we have a better product, in our opinion. And so you know, I tested seven different companies to see if we could use that 3PL type model and we couldn't and keep the design where it needed to be. And so I knew we need to open our own facilities then and also, you know, high, highly perishable, by the way. So the flowers we use 
Um, we use a lot more specialized varieties of flowers than a lot of our competitors because they don't last as long, which is why they don't use them. They can't sit on a pallet in a cooler for two weeks until those button mums are used when you're using garden roses that have like a one week shelf life. You have to use them within 24 hours or the customer's not going to get a week out of them, you know? So we, because we use higher quality, more expensive flowers, a higher design, a designed bouquet, and everything's highly perishable, both inbound and outbound. Um, it adds a lot of complexity that you can't just, I wish we could use 3PLs that are just boxing and shipping, like, you know, mm. pulling pack, you know, sweaters for us. Um, but unfortunately, that's not the case. So we have to open up our own, um, yeah. which is what we've done now. But we have to do it more slowly than we'd like to because we just don't have millions of dollars to do that at once um, because we're bootstrapped. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I totally understand. So one of my friends, uh, he runs one of the largest uh, hamper companies in Australia. So I understand the challenges around perishability. And um, I also understand the challenges around seasonality and being able to model how much stock to pre-purchase. I'd love to, to know, because one thing I did notice is even when you first started, you said, oh, you know, I've got to sell 11 to break even. Like, I think that's a really good takeaway for people. Like, I'm not, an, I'm not a mathematics person. I'm, I was hopeless at maths, but I, I'm not bad on my numbers, and I really got to know those numbers. Like, I think I, I can really see that you know your numbers. So tell me about kind of modeling that out, especially around seasonality. Um, you know, Mother's Day would be a big time for you. Um, obviously, Christmas. Like, yeah, because it's a it, – would you say you guys are a seasonal business or because you've gone, the per, you've gone kind of the – more personalized premium approach, it is less seasonality. There's less seasonality in, in, in your model or? Yeah. I mean, so we're lumpy. I think every company is lumpy in some way. So we're lumpy like every company, but it's less than what people think. So, you know, from October through end of May is our busy season. So that's a long busy season, you know? Um, and then June through September is our slow season. Uh, we go down about 30% during those months. Um, this year was not that we had no lull um, because there's no summer really when everybody's sheltering in place, right? So I know next year we'll go back to having more, you know, more of the summer slump as we call it. Um, probably, hopefully, when we have some vaccines, um, let's hope, knock on some wood. Um, but you know, so so we're lumpy like everything else, and everything is pl planned. And um, when I talk to you know I'm in YPO and some other entrepreneur groups, and when I talk to other CEOs, um, I have a big network of friends or CEOs and they're just like dismayed by like how much uh, risk there is at what we do, what you just said. Um, you know, if we overbuy for a major holiday, we'll go out of business. We literally will go out of business because we're buying millions of dollars of flowers well before. And we're now we're so you know big that we are custom growing with a lot of farms. So we're guaranteeing that every stem that they grow for us, if it, if it meets our quality standards, we will buy. And that is a year before any of the orders come in. So a pandemic wow. happens or a recession happens this next year. Like there's a lot of things that go into that on planning for it. And, you know, we have some really positives to our model to help with that, where, you know, with our mixed bouquets, um, our signature burlap wrap bouquets, and our bases, you don't get to pick what the flowers are at all. Yeah. Like we have some varieties that you do get to pick, but with our mixed bouquets, you don't get to. So if I have to sub things later on because of quality or, um, I need, you know, this single stem product we have didn't sell. I can move those stems into one of our mixed bouquets and do a new recipe for it. So there's, there is some flexibility that our model 
um, you know, this novel, you know, concept that I came up with that was different than everybody else allowed us some, some pros of, with that, that helped with supply chain management, but it's so risky. Like when we were shut down for the shelter in place in San Francisco, um, they gave us 12 hours to shut down. They gave everybody 12 hours notice. That's it. And we had hundreds of thousands of dollars of flowers already on their way to us. We had to throw out a lot of flowers, $150,000 we had to throw out. If we had to do that often, we would go out of business. And, you know, if we um, over order by more than, you know, a couple percent, we could go out of business, you know, so it's, it's really risky and we have to know our numbers. And this is why, you know, people get very upset when we sell out. And I'm like, I would rather sell out all day long than over buy and go out of business because I just had to throw away, you know, half a million dollars worth of flowers because I overbought that week, you know? So um, it, it's challenging. I'm very lucky that I have an amazing team. Um, I have somebody on my team who her projections are, I mean, crazy. Like a year from now, she'll tell me how many medium burlap wrap bouquets we're going to sell this week next year. Like, and she's within like 1.3%. I mean, it's crazy. Wow. Like she's so on it. Um, she's been with me for many years. Um, and it, it's interesting how, you know, things stay the same, you know, like, you know, the same percentage are buying mediums now that are buying later. Um, so it, it's interesting to see that the psychology of purchasing is really interesting to see that, but it, it's risky. It's really, really risky. I have no, nothing, there's nothing I can say that takes away the risk because it's, it's, it's a big risk. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting to hear because, um, yeah, like I said, my friend, he has a similar type model to you and, um, I, I we're quite close. Uh, I actually met him through EO and, um, yeah, like, uh, yeah, I, I hear you. Like, I really do. Because, like, you know, it, it's Christmas time. You got those mm -hmm. three months for him where it's just crazy. Yep. So I'm curious, um, coming back to year three, broke the million-dollar mark. Uh, sounds like you're really starting to get traction now. What do you think that was? Was it just compounding of just building the brand grassroots style and, and really starting to ramp up on the digital side? Um, honestly, it was, it, this may sound, I mean, marketing people would not want, not agree with me at all on this, but I will stand behind it. It was having a better product. It was really being focused on our product and our customer experience because word of mouth, I cannot stress enough how important it is. And so, you know, women love this. And the other thing is everybody assumes that men are the ones that buy flowers. They're not 80% of people that buy flowers are women buying for women. You buy for your mom and your sister and your girlfriends. And the reason is because you know how it feels to get flowers. And so you want to give all the, you know, your loved ones in your life, that feeling. And, you know, Valentine's day is the only time that flips. It becomes 90% men. Um, I hate that holiday. Um, but the rest of the year it's women buying for women. And when women love something, they love it. And they tell all of their girlfriends about it. And so that's what happened with us. You know, we have this, you know, we told a story about who we are, what we do. You know, we have these little pins that go in each, you know, each of our boxes have a little pin that has a story on it that's about grit or resilience. Or, you know, we've done a lot with the unboxing experience to make it like a great, like a this wonderful thing, you know, instead of it being, oh, I got flowers in a box. They're so excited to get a farm girl box and they're like Instagramming it and stuff. So, you know, those women told all of their girlfriends, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing flower company. You have to try them. And that there's no other reason that we grew other than we made a better product, a better mousetrap basically. And we really stuck with that. And we made, you know, a better customer experience. We sell all of our customer services in-house and we make sure that we take care of every customer. And 
you know, all of the review sites, I mean, they rave about us and it's not about our product. It's about our customer experience. It's about our customer service. And, you know, people don't put enough value into that, you know, and everybody talks about like, if somebody has a bad experience, they're going to tell 10 people and if somebody has a good experience, they're going to tell one person. I don't agree with that. I do think people tell 10 people if they don't like it, but if women really love it, like last weekend, all my girlfriends are like, talking about all my clothes they love them when, when I saw them and I was like okay well you know they're like where'd you get it and so send me all their referral codes and I'm all I was doing was sending referral codes to my girlfriends of where they can buy their clothes and stuff so if you really love a company a brand and a product you're going to share it and that's what happened and that's how we were able to to grow without any money <laughs> that's awesome um yeah look I I, I do uh, agree with your sentiment there that like when you can find a product that just flies off the shelves, that's when you know you're onto something and it is so much easier to market, it is so much easier to sell versus a subpar product and you need next level marketing. Um, so yeah, no, look, and that that's really pushed from you know San Francisco, Silicon Valley. Those, like, they are obsessed with the product. They're, they're really product people down there. So. It sounds like maybe a bit of that is rubbed off on you. I mean, definitely. But it's interesting to me that there's many other Silicon Valley flower companies that started after us that look strikingly similar. Um, and other oh, really? Yes, absolutely. And the thing, you know, they took a lot of inspiration from Farm Girl Flowers on almost everything. The one thing they didn't was making the product in-house because it cost a lot more, right? But that's the only way to keep the quality where you, where you want it to have a design bouquet. You can't have the same people making Safeway or the big grocery stores bouquets as making yours and expect them to look different, right? And so the, it's interesting to me because they, you know, and I try would, I try to explain this in those pit, the pitches, those 104 pitches that, that turned me down. I, you know, try to you know, when they'd be like, yeah, but you know, it's not sustainable to have $10 customer acquisition costs. And I'm like, I get it. It's not sustainable, but I don't think I'll ever have to have $80 customer acquisition cost, um, like our competitors do. And the reason I won't have to is because people always come back to farm real flowers because I make sure that we have a better product and we have a better customer experience. So if the average American consumer buys flowers four times a year, they come back to farm real four times a year. And so I don't need to spend $80. I, so the other companies that like aren't putting the emphasis on the product, you're going to have to keep spending that marketing because you have to acquire new customers all the time because when people come, they don't like what they get. You know, when I would go buy from those companies, I felt ripped off. I felt like I got a grocery store bouquet that I spent a hundred dollars on and that's what's happening because they're not focusing on the customer and the product. Uh, they're focusing, they're really great marketers. They have great technology companies. They have great marketing departments, but until you fix the problem, which is that, Flowers should not be ugly. You, know? you should have a beautiful bouquet and you should take care of your customer. If those flowers sat on a porch in 100 degree heat and died, you should send them a new one really quickly and make sure they're, they're taken care of. And that's what we do. Yeah, no, I love it. A um, lot of respect. So um, you said you would turn over like 60, over 60 million this year um, like, uh, and you're profitable like, uh, are you able to share kind of like, uh, like roundabouts for the margins or? Yeah. So until this year, we had, we ran it as close to zero as possible. That's the only thing that we were like Amazon on, right? We, I would try to run it at, wow. I would budget 2% profit and then everything, then I could afford to do some marketing if I had more than 2% profit. So, um, wow. yeah, we ran it close to zero as possible, um, in order to be able to grow it. And then, you know, because everything is, 
how much marketing you spend, how much, like all the things require a lot of how much subsidies you can do on shipping. You know, we've had to turn off certain areas that the subsidies were too high in. And so it's very controlled, like you said earlier. Um, but everything was controlled down to the profit. And so this year, uh, when COVID hit, and I didn't know if we were going to make it, to be quite honest, because I, you know, we actually make things with our hands and having to lay off 191 people in 12 hours and figure out where I was, you know, and have to shut down our facility that we're still paying really high rent on a huge 30,000 square foot warehouse in San Francisco and, you know, all the things with that. And I was like, how, how are we going to afford to do this? And it's a couple months before Mother's Day, which is like our Super Bowl of the year. And I have to figure out how to get distribution in place by then. Um, but the way that I did it, I re rearranged our entire distribution model um, was so much better for the company. Uh, and for profit. And so we're actually doing really well with profit and may even hit double digit profit numbers um, for the first time ever. Um, and like I said, we just turned marketing back on because we didn't need to um, because I couldn't do more than 100. We're like 105 percent year over year growth. And I couldn't we couldn't didn't have the we didn't have the supply to do more than that. Um, so I was like, why spend any money on marketing when we're selling out? you know, so shouldn't, that's not a good use of money. You know? So, um, you know, so this year has been a really bad year. Um, just with all the stuff we've had, we've had to do and figure out and, uh, get through a, a really good year financially for us. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. So you're running it like a VC based model where like, mm -hmm. you're not, yeah, like you could be profitable, but you're, mm -hmm. you're extremely aggressive on growth. Yes. Yes, we could make a lot more money um, if I had done things differently and not tried to get 100% growth numbers. You know, if I had tried to do this at a 10 to 20% growth and stayed, you know, what that would mean is I wouldn't do national shipping. The subsidies are far too great. You know, if we didn't, last year we subsidized over $3 million in shipping. Wow. If I had $3 million more in my pocket, you know, and a lot of founders would do that. They would just, you know, take a distribution of $3 million out of their company and, call it a day. And that's not what I, I never started this company to be a small business. I wanted, I want to grow it to a billion dollars. And so that's what I'm doing. Billion in revenue or billion in valuation? Billion in revenue. Okay. Wow. And when do you think you will get there? It depends. Um, so I think we could, I think we could definitely get there. I mean, honestly, it depends on, on, the economy, what's going to happen um, with the economy, um, with unemployment being what it is. But if everything went as it is right now and how things have, have gone right now, we could be there in five years. Just servicing the U.S. market or have to go international? I would like to go international. We're already working on some international plans. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. You know, COVID's been an interesting one because I think um, it's been a true test of, of every every founder's leadership abilities and skills and, and entrepreneurial skills. I'd love to know what have been your biggest lessons that you wouldn't have had um, if you didn't go through this. Yeah, um, that's a great question. What I realized very quickly when having to shut down the company in 12 hours was that the things that I was most proud of and how I'd set up my company were the things that made us the most vulnerable to what just had happened. So That's I was, what? yeah. So the things that I just said about how like keeping all the control in house by doing everything ourselves, you know, until I was very fortunate that um, we had just opened a second distribution center in Ecuador, January 5th. So two months before COVID. 
And if I hadn't done that, we, it would have been even, even much worse because I mean, that was a very small, it had only been operating for two months. So it was doing about 10% of our orders from there. Um, and we had to then move all of the orders that were in the system very quickly there and then communicate to all of our customers. They were going to be late because we had to figure out, you know, it takes longer to get them from there. Um, but even doing that in two locations, really one and a quarter, because that one was not up to, to scale yet because we just launched it two months earlier, made us so vulnerable because, you know, when a city tells you you have to shut down because nobody budgets for a pandemic, right? Nobody like plans on a pandemic, right? Um, you know, I planned for unplanned expenses and my you know, P&L and stuff, but I never planned for this. And uh, all of the other companies, like I said, they don't make the flowers in-house. They have, you know, partner farms and just, you know, bouquet makers and 3PLs and all these, you know, distribution model is very different than ours. And they were able to keep going because they have people all over the world fulfilling these orders for them. And say, if you had to shut down based on, on what was going on in those cities, they had many others. So even if they had to shut down 25% of the places, if they have 300 places shipping for them, they're not vulnerable to shutting down their whole company. And, and we were. And um, I was so proud of how we had done that and that we had everybody in house and we had met great, you know, had created great manufacturing jobs in the U S and, and I mean, 12 hours later, I went from 197 team members to six, you know, six, everybody else had to furlough and figure out what I was going to do. So, um, what I've learned though, is that I should have done what we just did so much sooner you know, changing my whole distribution model to a much smarter one that makes us less vulnerable to things like this happening. I should have done years ago, but I didn't because I was really wedded to this. This is the right way to do it. And, um, and that I won't do again, you know, and I also, there was some fear to it because it's a PR nightmare. If you were going to shut down in San Francisco where everybody is really into brand, right. And everything. And we we're like the sweethearts of San Francisco where you see our bike careers all over the city with flowers all over their baskets and stuff, you know, and we had all this press and we were in a national commercial capital one commercial for it and stuff. So, I mean, like, it was like, uh, you know, to then say like, I'm going to close down this facility and move it somewhere cheaper. That is that's where the city in a city that San Francisco is not set up for manufacturing. It was ridiculous to run a manufacturing facility in San Francisco. You know, that was the stupidest thing that I could have done. And so I should have moved it years ago. But, you know, I was like, I can't, you know, the PR nightmare, I'd be scared of like people, what they would say and all that, you know, and I should have just done it, do the hard things sooner and the things that are right for the company and don't care what people say about it, you know, because there's armchair quarterbacks everywhere telling me everything I do is wrong. But, you know, so what? <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's a great one. And any others that have really forced you to level up as a leader or an entrepreneur um, that, yeah, you've, you've really learned from during this time from a point of reflection? I mean, I don't know if this is like learning, but I, I have to say it's like this year has been absolutely the hardest year of my life. And um, I think it would have been really easy to just to give in. This year would have been the year to just give in. And, um, you know, when all this happened, I, after I cried for a little bit that night and felt sorry for myself, I realized that, you know, this how I set up the company was all of it was choices, you know, like everything is a choice. And so I can either make the choice to, to walk away now. Um, and I thought about it cause you know, I, to, I don't pay myself a whole lot of money. I'm not the CEO that makes a half a million dollars a year. You know, I was paying myself $60,000 a year 
putting everything back into the company. This was like my baby, you know, and um, I didn't set myself up well either because when I sat there feeling sorry for myself and thinking, oh my gosh, I would have made more money if I just stayed at Stanford, like literally, you know, and I just worked 120 hours a week for 10 years, you know, um, that's not smart either. So, you know, it sounds like a weird thing to say, but like making sure that you're setting yourself up well, that you're setting your company up well and not like, you know, I was like putting every dime back into the company because this was so important to me and it could be gone tomorrow. You know, it could really be gone tomorrow. Um, so there's that learning. Um, we've had everything from, you know, with that, we had to redo our whole distribution. I mean, it, it has definitely shown a very bright light and I always knew this, but to see it so clearly on the importance of your team, you know, like my team, the fact that they are right alongside me opening up like eight more fulfillment centers by the end of the year, like working just so hard is because they care so much. And, you know, I can't do this myself. And so it's just making sure that we're taking, that I'm taking care of my team because they're so important. Um, that's been a great learning and a great reminder of that this year. Um, then also had, um, we had an issue with, um, some accusations of race, um, when everything was going on with George Floyd here. And that was the hardest thing I've probably ever gone through as a CEO. And what I've learned from that is honestly not to give it any weight because you're never going to stop people from saying things. And the bigger you get, the more people there are going to be out there that want to say things that are not true. And by giving it any weight and time, it's taking away from the things you need to do. Um, so really staying focused on, you know, there's all these distractions all the time um, and just not giving it any weight or any of your time because you have so little of it. Time is the best, you know, the most important resource that you have. And so to get to spend it on anything that's not important is a waste of time, you know. So that was a big learning. And, and it's hard because, you know. I don't know if I think that this is might be a female trait more so too on really caring what people think about you a lot. And so, um, you know, I like to think of, you know, care about people, but don't care about what they think of you. That's kind of like my mantra right now. So. Awesome. Well, look, um, yeah, uh, where's the, we'll wrap there, but um, last question I'll ask is where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work? Yeah, um, the best place is at farmgirlflowers.com, our website. Um, that's where I'd love everybody to go. <laughs> so that'd be great. Um, and then also we're very active on digital channels as well. Instagram, Facebook and all that. We do stories and you can kind of see behind the scenes if they're interested to learn more about Farm Girl. Awesome. Well, look, that was an amazing interview. Thank you so much for your time and congratulations on your success. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.